You know, we said uh, a little while ago in saying the Lord's Prayer, we said, Thy will be done. And uh, last week, Terry spent a good amount of time explaining to us that God's will, to a large part, is that we be totally committed to service, to loving each other, to reaching out to people. That that be the focus of our lives. Knowing God and letting that affect us into reaching out. And I don't know how that affected you to to hear Terry challenge us to do that. I was talking to Gary Merkel this last week, and he was excited. He felt that was a call to arms, that we as a church could really start to have an effect if people took that seriously. If we started really committing ourselves to God, to be used by Him to serve, that, that the things that He could do through this body are incredible. And I agree. I think God could transform us and affect the, our places of work. He could affect the whole community of Boise. And not only that, I think he could affect the whole world. Now that may seem kind of absurdly grandiose to think that we here in Boise could affect the whole world. But if you seriously look at history, you see that that's the way God does it. God takes a small group of people who are willing to commit themselves to pray earnestly, consistently, persistently, Thy will be done, and give themselves to God so that He can do His will through them. And He takes that small group of people and He affects the world. You know, the most significant revival in history since the Reformation, maybe even including the Reformation, was what was called the Great Awakening happened during the middle part of the 17th century, or 1700s, 18th century. And it was begun by a small church of Moravian refugees who had been run out of their hometown and were living on the property of a, of a man by the name of Count von Zinzendorf. And they were there and they said, God, we want to see your will done on this earth. And they begin praying that and they begin making themselves available to God. To, to love people, to serve. And God began a movement there that affected the entire world. People would come and say, my gosh, there's something happening here. And they would go back and spread it. People would, would look up from the outside and say, my gosh, there's something happening there. I want that. People would go out of that church and to the world, all over the world, and infect the world for Christ. And that can happen here in Boise. But it's not going to happen. We aren't going to be committed to service. We aren't going to see God move mightily here and affect the world. Unless we're praying. And uh, I, I'm afraid that the sad truth is, for the most part, we aren't praying. And I say, why aren't we praying? I asked that to a college student the other day. I said, why aren't you praying? He turned it around to me and he said, why should I pray? And I went, well, uh, well, started feeling a little uncomfortable and squirming a little bit. And then I thought of something. I said, oh, yeah, the Bible says to pray. <laughs> I got him. I said, Scripture instructs us. God commands it. So you pray because God commands it. And that's true. God does command it. And we're fortunate that he does. Because if he didn't, we'd be foolish enough not to do it. C.H. Spurgeon puts it this way. Yet so strange is the inclination of man on the one hand, which makes him need a command to be merciful to his own soul. And so marvelous is the condescension 
of our gracious God, on the other hand, that he issues a command of love without which not a man would partake of the gospel feast, but would rather starve than come. Hence it is that we need to be commanded to attend that very act which it ought to be our greatest happiness, as it is our, great, our highest privilege to perform, that is, to meet with God. What he's saying is, you know, it, it, it's awful silly that he has to tell us to do what should be the thing we would want to do more than anything. That's our greatest privilege, to talk to God, to know God, to relate to Him. But we do need to be commanded. So on the, the bottom line is, we're commanded to pray. And that should be enough. But I think that reason the college student was, was saying, why should I pray, is not because he didn't realize Scripture said to do it, but he hadn't, it, it didn't seem logical that God should tell us to do it. Why should we pray? Isn't God sovereign? Doesn't he know what I need? Isn't he good enough to do it without me telling him about it? You know, and th- those are real questions. And the, the, the logical progression came down to, well, if all those things are true, then prayer is pretty much a waste of time. My uh, two-year-old daughter and I were in the backyard uh, a couple months ago, actually, just after a rainstorm. There was a big puddle, and there was this huge uh, night crawler drowning in the puddle. It had come up to try to get air, and all it got when it got to the top was a puddle. And it was flopping around. My daughter came up and looked at it, and I said, Holly, what should we do? She looked up and she folded her hands and she said, let's pray for it. <laughs> and I think that, that typifies what we think of prayer. Prayer is something we do when we really should be taking care of the problem. That prayer, we do it because we're commanded to do it, but what we really need to be do is, doing is out there acting, getting involved, doing things. And prayer seems like kind of a waste of time, but we have to do it because we're told to. Well, let's look at something Jesus has to say about prayer in in Luke 18. I want to study the parable here. We're going to look at the first eight verses. He said, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will they delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus wanted to teach them something about prayer. So he told them a parable. A parable is is an antidote, antidote is a short story, an illustration, sometimes even a riddle, which is used to clarify a point or at least to get people thinking about something. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to get his disciples, he's trying to get us to think about it. Okay, so let's look at the parable. The parable starts with a judge. 
There was in a certain city, this is verse 2, a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Okay? This judge is, is probably a Roman judge because in the, the Jewish society, most disputes were handled by the elders. And if it was something that needed to go to court, there were at least three judges there. That way they ensured that, that one judge would not be perverting justice. So this guy was a, a, probably a political appointee. Jesus says it's in a certain city, not a significant city, probably someplace way off in the, in the boondocks, that the governor, the provincial uh, ruler, did not care about. So this judge had a free hand. He could do anything he wanted. And these judges were notorious for taking bribes. They were, they were popularly called robber judges. They would give the uh, decision to whoever had the largest amount of money. It was a very simple system of justice. Whoever wrote the biggest check won. Save some time and save some energy. Okay, and it says about this man, he did not fear God. Basically what that means is he didn't care what God thought. He was a realist. He'd been around long enough to know that God's not going to do anything about it anyway. You know, I, if I pervert justice, I rip somebody off, so what? What's God going to do? He hasn't done anything yet. Maybe he can't do anything. So why should I worry about what God's going to do? Now, that was his attitude says also that he did not respect man. That phrase, respect man, literally means he was not able to be shamed by men. Nobody could make him ashamed. He was shameless. He's the kind of guy you'd walk up to and say, don't you realize what you're doing? You're destroying our society. You're hurting innocent people. You're, you're wrecking lives. It's a, yeah, so? That's all you'd get from him. He wasn't ashamed at all. As long as there was nothing in it for him, he didn't care. And he didn't care about this woman. Because what comes to him is a widow. Verse 3. And there was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection. Now in scripture, a widow is proverbial for needy. When one of the writers of scripture wants to say, Concern yourself with needy people, they say, Care for the widows and orphans. Because in that culture, in that society, there were no more needy people than widows or fatherless. And the reason is that, that in that society, women could not inherit real property. There were certain things they could own, but nothing of real substance. Anything they enjoyed actually belonged to their father. And when they left the protection of their father to, to live with a husband, it actually belonged to the husband. And they had no real rights. If somebody infringed on a woman's right, what was actually happening is they were infringing on her father's rights and he would make them stop. Or they were infringing on her husband's rights and he would make them stop. They didn't have the rights themselves. So what would happen is a, a woman would leave the protection, the legal uh, protection of her father, go under the legal protection of her husband, and if he was removed, she was without it. Fortunately, I think today we have better laws. Women can own things. Hopefully, they're, they're getting better, that legal equality is becoming more and more a reality. But I want us to realize that doesn't mean that the plight of widows is all that much easier today. That in our, in our high-pressured society, in our, our expensive society, widows, especially those with small children really are still needy people. 
And throughout Scripture, God identifies himself with widows. So if we are truly his children, if he is truly our God, then we need to identify with widows. We need to go out of our way to minister to the single parent, to minister to the widow. That needs to be one of our priorities. But anyway, this widow, somebody was ripping her off. Somebody was imposing his will on her. Jesus doesn't say how. She, he just says that she came to this judge, this judge who had no moral sensitivity at all, no sense of moral obligation, and she said, stop this guy. We don't know exactly what he's doing, but we do know that somehow he was imposing his will on her, whether it was to take something from her or force her to do something, or whatever. But, and she was unable to stop him. Now, widows in that society did have some rights. There were certain laws written, especially for widows, because they were an exceptional case. But the problem is, what good are laws if nobody enforces them? And if you didn't have a man to enforce them in, in that part of Palestine, they weren't, where they weren't enforced, unless the judge did it. So she comes to this judge and says, Hey, judge, do your job. This guy is, is, is putting pressure on me and you're not stopping it. Stop it. Okay? So the judge says, And for a while, verse 4, he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. It's interesting that last phrase, she wear me out, literally means give me a black eye. And it has led some to speculate that perhaps uh, he was not only afraid of her persistence, but that she would punch him out as well as wear him out. But I think it's a, a, a figure of speech coming from boxing to, to hit repeatedly with the effect that you immobilize, you incapacitate the opponent. And that's what he's talking about, that she just persistently coming and coming. I have an older brother that when I was uh, a lot younger and a lot smaller, used to enjoy uh, trying out techniques of torture on his little brother, which happened to be me. And one of the things he would do would be to take his finger, and he'd sit on my chest, take his finger, and just tap me on the forehead. No problem, didn't hurt. And he'd do it again, and again, and again. And after about 15 seconds, you're kind of laughing, because you think, hey, come on, you know. Then after about 30 seconds, you're starting to scream. After about a minute, you're nuts. You just, it, it drives you crazy. It's just constantly hitting you and hitting you. And pretty soon it's echoing in your head. And I think that's the picture. This lady just kept coming and coming. And the first couple of times, the judge said, you know, don't bother me. Don't bother me, lady. I don't care about you. Don't bother me. And after a while, it just kept coming. And pretty soon, he'd wake up in the morning and think, oh, no, that lady's coming today. <laughs> and finally, he said, hey, I've got to get rid of her. I'll give her what she wants. Okay? So that's the story. Now, what does it mean? What do we learn from it? It seems like what we learn is that God doesn't give a rip about you people. <laughs> that if you want to get him to do anything, you just got to hassle him until he finally says, okay, 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 I'll quit. I'll, I'll give you what you want. But again, it doesn't say that. I, I, you laugh because you know it can't say that. <laughs> and if I taught that, I'd have to uh, find a new job. But what... What it is saying, Jesus, Jesus brings out. He says, verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear the unrighteous judge. Hear what he had to say. Well, what did he say? 
He said, even though I do not fear God or respect man, even though I have no moral sensitivity at all, even though I have no sense of moral obligation that I don't care who I hurt, and I don't care about this woman at all, that I'll do what I'm supposed to do just because she bugs me. That's what he said. Okay, and then he brings out a contrast here. Verse 7. Now shall not God, who is righteous, who is the source of all sense of, of moral sensitivity, who is anxious to do right, who does right only, now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who he cares about intimately, who he's concerned with every detail of their lives? And will he delay long over them? Oh, excuse me, who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. He won't take a long time. The judge, he put it off as long as he could until he couldn't take anymore. It says, and for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he gave in. Now, God will do it speedily. See, it's a contrast. Everything that judge is, God is not. Unrighteous, uncaring, unloving, taking his time, trying to put it off. God is the opposite of that. God is righteous. He is loving. He's going to do it speedily. And the point is, if this unrighteous, unloving, uncaring, corrupt man could be influenced to do what was right, how much more can we expect God, who is righteous and loving, and who is anxious to do what is right, how much more can we expect him to do it? And that seems to be the point. That if this woman could influence this man, God is hearing our prayers. It's interesting, or it's worth noting at least, what it is that this woman asked for. This woman did not come and say, Okay, judge, I need a new car. Okay, judge, I need you to make my life real easy. Take care of all the sickness in my life. Make sure everything's smooth, nothing, no, nothing gets in my way. That's not what she asked for. And that's not what Jesus promises to bring about speedily. What, he promised, what God promises to bring about speedily here is justice. What is justice? There are ten words which are translated from the Greek and Hebrew into the word justice in the New American Standard Bible. This one is the least frequently so translated because every place else other than this one passage, it's translated to avenge, to bring vengeance. And that's what she's asking for. She's, she went to the judge and she said, look at this guy is imposing his will on my life and I want you to make him stop, to push him away. And that's what the judge ultimately did. And if we're crying out day and night for justice, what we're crying out for is, God, get the oppressor off my back. Okay, now who is our oppressor? I think you guys are taught well enough to know that it is not man. Ephesians uh, 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, Satan and his forces are our oppressors. You might say, well, how? I don't really feel all that oppressed. Well, it's spiritually. That's why you don't see it. Oh, spiritually. So not really, but spiritually. 
That's not what I mean. Because the spiritual, though it is unseen, that it is intangible in many ways, it is real. And the oppression of Satan is that which makes it so hard for us not to get sucked into this comfort culture that Terry was talking about last week. Not to get sucked into materialism. The, the oppression of Satan makes us fear God's plan for our lives so that we try to avoid it because we're afraid it's going to be a bummer. It seduces us into, into selfishness and into sin. It immobilizes it. It destroys the people around us. Last Sunday, during the first service, I sat in the office with a woman who saw very clearly the oppression of Satan as she cried over a son who was being destroyed by him, who was, was in spite of, of all the wise counsel, in spite of all the chances he had been given, was marching straight on towards destruction. And she knew who was behind it, and she hated him for it. She hated Satan, and she cried, and she asked God to bring about justice, to bring about vengeance, to push him back off. Okay, and again, you might say, well, that, that may be true, but I'm not a materialist. I'm not a hedonist. I'm not all cut up in self-pity. I'm doing okay. But the, the, the way that I would like you to, to examine yourself is, are you responding to what Terry said last week? Terry made it clear that it is the will of God that we be wholeheartedly committed to service, that that be our priority, that because of our devotion to God, our getting to know Him, we respond by reaching out and loving other people, and that's our focus in life. And if you're not, there's something holding you back. And I maintain that is Satan having his will in your life, rather than God having his will. And so when we pray for justice... We're saying, God, get him off of my back. Get him away. Help me to be freed from his will, to do your will. What's that going to look like? It means that you're going to be freed from your self-pity to get out and wholeheartedly serve, to love people, to really seek to meet their needs. You're going to be freed from your, your focus on having things or having fun to really wholeheartedly serve you can be freed from your laziness, from all the other things that might be what's holding you particularly back. And you're going to be able to enjoy God as He's intended to be enjoyed. That our life completely yielded to Him. Seeing Him use you mightily. Seeing Him use you to change things. Okay. So that is, is uh, what was prayed for why don't we pray for that? Let's look at, at, at uh, verse 1. It says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they must pray and not lose heart. That word translated in yours, they ought to pray, should be much stronger. They must do. It's must pray. It's necessary. They've got to pray or they lose heart. Now those are your only two choices. You've got two choices. No more. You pray or you lose heart. Okay? Now, the word lose heart is interesting because it, it is a, whole, a lot more than feel discouraged. You, when you lose heart, the word literally means you act badly. 
So what happens is when you stop praying, you become overwhelmed by the oppressor. The oppressor is still having his will in your life. And you give in to a, a cynicism or you give in to a selfishness or you give in to a, a, a wrong priorities and all the rest. When you face something difficult, when you see what, what Satan's doing and you pray and you pray and you pray and it doesn't look like anything's happening, say, okay, I can't take it anymore, and you quit. That, that leaves you only the choice of acting badly, of losing heart. Because you have to do one of two things. Either you have to stop caring about what you were praying about and retreat into kind of, some kind of defeated cynicism or some way of just saying, I don't care anymore. Or you have to get out there and you have to try to do something about it. You have to try to manipulate that person. You have to try to, to conquer sin in your own life. And if you choose any of those two, either of those two courses, you're effectively useless as far as the kingdom. You're not going to be used by God. You're not going to be available to Him. One thing I think it's important to point out is, like I said, that... that um, Feeling or that, that losing heart is not describing merely a feeling, a feeling of being discouraged. Because we all get discouraged. I think it's part of being human beings that we get discouraged. The fact that so much of the spiritual battle is unseen, that when I've been praying day after day after day that God would release me from this sin that defeats me and then defeats me and then defeats me, that I don't see what he's doing. And as a result, I start to get nervous, thinking, well, maybe he's not doing anything at all. And I get discouraged. Or if you're, if you're praying for that, that, that husband or wife who is, is living a lifestyle that's really destroying them, and you pray for him and you pray for him, and it doesn't seem like God's doing anything, you get discouraged. Because you don't see what God's doing. Uh, because we're finite, because we can't see clearly the spiritual, we get discouraged. Anytime we can't see what's happening, we get discouraged. My daughter was waiting for a ride to the fair the other day. And uh, the, the, the person who was coming to pick her up and take her with a, a friend to the fair was maybe five minutes late. And she was sure it was never going to happen. And she was walking back and forth up and down the sidewalk and, and was scared to death that she wasn't going to come. She wasn't going to come. It wasn't because she had any reason to think she wasn't going to come but because she couldn't see her coming. And we naturally do that. And that fear, that anxiety, that feeling of discouragement, that is not sin. Hear what C.S. Lewis has to say about it. Some feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith. I don't agree at all. They are afflictions, not sins. Like all afflictions, they are, if we can so take them, our share in the sufferings of Christ. See, again, the feelings aren't the sin. The sin comes in when we give in to the feelings and we stop praying. Because as soon as you stop praying, you act badly. You begin to give in to the oppressor, even though you may not know it. Now, some may say, well, you know, I don't not pray because I'm I'm discouraged. I don't pray just because I'm lazy. You know, I think most of us would say that. I'm not, I haven't lost heart. I'm just lazy. But that's what we're talking about. 
That laziness is keeping you from being used by God. That laziness really is the oppression of our opponent. That laziness really is acting badly. That is what losing heart means. I think the conclusion is that we pray not only because we're told to, but we pray because it's absolutely necessary for our spiritual survival. That we either pray or we lose heart. And when we lose heart, we become spiritually dead, spiritually unuseful. I want to challenge you guys to do uh, two things. One is to begin, or to pray two things. One is to pray for yourself every day this week, and for those of you who can handle it every day this month. Pray that God would bring about justice in your life. And by that I mean that God would push back the opponent. That God would free you from whatever it is that's keeping you from yielding yourself completely to Him, to be used by Him to love people, to serve. Pray that He would make you great for Him, that He would use you mightily. And pray that every day. And it doesn't matter if you don't know how He's going to do it or what it is He has to take care of to get you there. Pray that day after day. Come to Him night and day. And the second thing I want you to pray is that He would start a revival here in this church that would affect the world. Now again, those are, are, are big things. That He would make me great for Him. That He would start a, a, a revival here. But look what He says at the end of the passage. I tell you that... Oh, excuse me, the second half of verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? It literally means this faith. It's, it's articulate. Will he find this faith? What faith is he talking about? The faith that that woman had that said, I'm going to keep coming back. I'm going to keep coming back. The faith that says, I may not see what God's doing to change my life. I may not see what God's doing in our, our body, but I'm going to keep coming back because I know he's doing something. I know he's that kind of God that he will do something. And that's the faith he wants to see. I had taught to me once that, that, now, faith means you take it to God and you leave it. Because he'll take care of it. And if you keep bringing it up, it shows that you have no faith. It's not, that's not the way it works. It's true. God doesn't forget. God doesn't need the reminder. God already knows. That's all true. But I lose heart. I get discouraged, and as a result, I start to act badly. So that is the kind of faith we want to exhibit. A faith that keeps coming back and keeps coming back. I've been studying through um, a book, getting ready to teach a class on the dynamics of spiritual life. And the book I've been reading is called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life by uh, Richard Lovelace. It's an excellent book. It's a thick one, but it's an excellent one. And one of the things he does is he traces revivals since Pentecost. And you see a pattern coming up as, you, as you're reading his historic descriptions of each of these. What happens is the Spirit of God goes out. People are responding to God by, by praying and by putting their attention on Him. And God is using them to reach the communities, to really love people, to build each other up, and to reach out and draw people to Himself, and to meet needs, and to affect the world. And things are going great. 
And things keep going great. And a little while later, people get pretty comfortable with the way that things are going. They get pretty happy about the way things are going. And they stop praying. And the, 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 the structures keep going. People keep, uh, still keep meeting in the tents. They still keep having Bible studies and having this and having that. But there's, there's, there's no life in it. It becomes hollow. It becomes a shell. And generations start looking at it and say, look at this. That's empty. That's foolish. And they begin to reject it. And it dies. And a little while later, people look around and they say, hey, this is dead. God, we need help. We need you to do something. And they begin praying and they come to him night and day. And they ask for justice, that the enemy be pushed back in their lives and in Christianity as a whole. And they pray and God's spirit goes out and it revives and new things begin to happen. And and it becomes alive again. And the Spirit goes out and, and, and people are brought to Christ and, and people are, are being ministered to, being built up and encouraged and loved within the body. And then people say, hey, this is great. And their, need, their sense of need is gone. And they stop praying. And it becomes empty again. And it becomes hollow again. The other day I was uh, at a store and uh, the guy that was taking my money he, uh, he and I were talking for a while, and I had mentioned that I was involved at Cole. He said, you know, I haven't come over yet, meaning I haven't become a Christian yet. But when I do, I'm going to go to Cole, because there's some real people out there. I thought, boy, you yeah. <laughs> No, really, I, I thought, that is neat. That is a neat testimony, and I felt good, and I felt proud to be involved with you people. But I also started thinking... Things are happening here. The Spirit is moving. There are people ministering. There is outreach into the community. There are needs being met in the different things going on here. But are we praying? Are we comfortable with what's going on? Are we going to just let it die? Let it fall apart and have to wait for other generations to pick it up again? Or are we going to break the pattern and pray now? And see God continue to move. There's no reason to stop praying, even if we're not feeling desperately the need. The need is there. Let's keep praying. Let's pray together. Lord God, I do ask that you would call each of us to pray. I confess that I so quickly lose heart, and my life shows it. And I confess that I, I need this word. Lord, I ask that you move each of us to be praying every day this week, to be seeing you work, to know that you do hear us, that even if we don't see it, you are bringing it about speedily, to trust you. Lord, I do pray that you you begin a revival here among us and that you affect the entire world, that we could thrill at seeing you act in power, that we could thrill in seeing you use each of us for your glory. And not just come and and be here. Not just come and and feel good about having come to church. But to really see you move. God, I, I praise you that this is your desire. That you are a righteous God. A God who cares about us. A God who loves us. And who wants to free us from the things that are holding us back. Lord, we just look for you to do that. In your son's name we pray these things. Amen.